Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for December has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. My guest this week is Chase Nordengren, a PhD student at the University of Washington studying educational policy. How's it going, Chase? Going great, Brett. How's it going with you? It's good. It's good. It's really, it's negative 35 degrees wind chill right now. Yeah, that's just a, in my experience, there's cold and then there's a level of cold that's sort of unimaginable. Like I've been through 35 below before, but I just, I can't even remember what it was like. You block the memory pretty quickly. Yeah. It makes, it makes my nose bleed, but then it freezes. I get like blood sickles. Sounds like a horror movie. That's that's always appealing for passersby. Yeah, and podcast listeners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. I wouldn't worry about those guys. But uh, so educational policy, huh? Yeah. What uh? What what does that encompass? So I am a PhD student in a college of education, and colleges of education are sort of fascinating in the sheer variety of of the things that they do. Um, there are people a floor above me who are doing sort of the kinds of psychological experiments with kids that you, you know, that you might imagine from psych departments in the eighties. They're, you know, figuring out what methods of teaching kids work best with, and they're splitting kids up into treatment and control classrooms and that sort of thing. You know, and there are people a floor below floor below me who are doing something closer to history or philosophy or critical theory of all that. I sort of sit in the middle. I study educational leadership, which basically includes all of the things that adults do with each other that influence what goes on in classrooms. And I'm particularly interested in principals and teachers and this idea of teacher leadership, which is how teachers participate in in the kind of work that principals do building schools. And um, But because of that, because of that tradition where, Folks in colleges of education do all sorts of different things. I've got a bunch of different tools at my disposal to think about how to get about studying problems in that universe and, and um, even what kinds of questions I want to answer. That is, that's a pretty broad scope, really. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of things that I don't know anything about. And I only know about some of them, to be fair. Um <laughs> But you said what adults do together, and I had I almost I almost giggled. But then you said something about a classroom, and then I thought that's either like a really bad '80s porn movie, or <laughs> um, yeah. Well, it's the it's the best way I can think of to differentiate it. There are whole hosts of people in colleges of ed that are studying to be teachers, or they're studying to be principals, and they're thinking about how to work with kids. And, and education policy is kind of everything else. Fair enough. I have a friend who is, uh, he's a school psychologist, but his, um, his passion really is kind of in the area that you're talking about. Like he really likes, he's a statistics guy and he likes to, he wants to develop an app that I won't go into too much detail on. So I'm not spilling the beans about his idea, but an app for, for educators, but focused on the students. So it's a tool for the students to use, but the it's, it's a, it's, yeah, it's complicated. I barely understand what he's talking about, 
but but that's that's why that's why I uh, am at a loss to even know what question to ask you on this topic. What's your uh, what's your biggest kind of uh, challenge or like what interests you the most about what you're studying? Sure. Uh, my dissertation actually, and, and I can sort of describe the edges of it and hopefully that'll, that'll lead us down a more productive path. So I'm interested in this idea of teacher leadership, which is the notion that teachers on and beyond what they do in the classroom can have effects on the way schools are run or the way that um, information about schooling is is spread. Um, and there's been for a long time a, a pretty strong tradition in um, conceptually understanding that teacher leadership is this thing that occurs and um, particularly this understanding that different teachers can lead at different times and in different situations. Um, there's been less understanding of how that specifically takes place. And so one of the things that I'm doing or attempting to do is uh, borrowing actually social network theory and social network methods, which you may have seen in, from several other fields, you know, this, this connecting of individuals between each other with little circles and lines, um, using that as a way to get at what teachers in a building are actually influencing, talking to, advising, supporting other teachers and um, how and where they're doing it. Okay. Give me a practical example of what teacher leadership would be like in I'm in school. Okay. What, what <laughs> does a teacher do that is considered in this realm? So uh, a pretty classic example would be a kind of instructional coaching. So you're a novice teacher. I'm a veteran teacher. You're having problems implementing the district's new math curriculum. So you come to me with some questions and I sort of talk you through how I've done something, or I, you know, pull in some knowledge that may come from my experience that may help you, that sort of thing. I get it. So that's what adults do with each other. Yeah. So that, that falls under the category of what adults do with each other. And of course there are formal ways to do that. So there are individuals who have job titles like teacher coach or um, resource specialist who get paid a little extra and, and have time specifically carved out in the middle of their day to do that. But there are also lots of folks who do that informally when, you know, someone comes and knocks on their door. And one of the things that the, the network methodology is trying to get at is trying to better account for all of those informal instances. Nice. Okay. I get that. So what kind of tools do you use in, uh, in, in both the study or, or in practical application of this? So the tools arena, and it's, it's, especially on the technology side, the tools are just so they, they, they feel, they, they feel like they lack a certain robustness, but um, I'm primarily a qualitative researcher, which means that the, the data I gather is a lot about interviewing individuals and transcribing those interviews and then analyzing those transcripts. So there are a couple of different software packages that do that kind of qualitative analysis. Um, I use uh an old one that, that was made just for the Mac called hyper research. And um, you will recognize that the hyper prefix is in hyper research because it was originally designed for HyperCard. <laughs> um, it's still, it's, it's, it's chugging along, um, albeit barely. Um, but it basically, it does a kind of, um, it lets you do a kind of in document tagging almost where the sort of the basic um, 
activity that you're doing when you're doing qualitative analysis is you're reading back through the transcript of an interview and you're highlighting segments and applying basically content tags to them. Um, and then sort of taking that information and exporting it in actually one of the reasons why I like hyper research is it exports plain text, um, exporting that into reports where all of the um, parts of documents that are tagged a certain way are put together so that you can look at those pieces of information together and kind of assemble some meaning based on rereading and chunking information in different ways. Now we're talking about stuff I get. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so d is there any automation to hyper research? Like, can it, can it semantically analyze the text and tag it itself? Or does that all have to be manual? There is a little bit of automation built into hyper research. There's probably considerably more automation built into some of the newer and um, more expensive uh, packages, um, Atlas TI and Invivo being the two big ones that qualitative researchers use. Um, it's difficult, you know, it, this may partly be because academics are so attached to the, the part of the job that keeps us employed, right? Um, there's a certain reluctance by a lot of people to trust that kind of um, analysis to automation, both uh, primarily because there's a, there's a sense that particularly when you're looking for a theory to be emergent, right? When you don't know what you're looking for before you go into an area um, that having, having the computer try to parse out, for example, word frequencies or phrases that occur often together is going to leave on the table a whole, a whole host of understandings that the, that the human brain might be better um, able to tackle a rap. Right, but if you around. if you use the computer, if you if you fully utilize the computer's ability to to pick out those obvious frequency and relationship uh, in the text, you'd be you'd be freed up to to analyze the rest uh, without having to. It, would, it seems like it would make your life easier and provide a more productive outcome because then the, the human brain could tackle the more complex parts without being mired down in semantic analysis. That's definitely the case. And I think that's especially the case with content where going in, you know what it is you want to look for so that you can. Um, and, and again, it's, it's entirely possible that, that the semantic processing that these programs do could and probably should be a lot better. Um, but when you, when you know, when you're looking for it, then, then it's a little bit easier uh, to let that, semantic processing take over. I think, you know, I'm, I'm an academic, so I'm obligated to say it depends, right? Um, it, depending on the, the nature of the project, you can sort of more or less rely on um, that kind of automation to get at what you're after. What does, uh, what does, I'm a, I'm an app, uh, what does I'm an academic mean to you? Like, <laughs> what is being an academic? How does that uh, differ from being a, uh a layman being a, a normal person. Well, I, I was sort of using it as a punchline there. Sure. Um, but no, I think, but I'm, I think, I'm just curious because I, right. I get that a lot. I have a lot of very, very smart people like you on the show and I hear the word academic a lot and I don't know, does that mean that you are spending most of your time in a book as opposed to the real world or does it mean you approach problems in a different way? I'm, I'm just curious. Sure. Um, I think the, the framing of the problem and, and what I was sort of joking about 
is it's it's sort of the obligation of the academic to complicate things, to make things more difficult to um, – Yes, sort of I'm an academic. Not, <laughs> uh, to, to not rely on, on – on pat answers and it's it's a little bit i i think and this is my bias as a social scientist coming through it's a little bit easier for some of your past guests who are hard scientists to say um here was an experiment the results of experiment x were outcome y therefore we know outcome y to be true but even in their case they're sort of um they're running these sort of really nuanced experiments that are meant to come up with fairly particular findings Whereas, you know, the, the lay person stands back and they, they look at, you know, the psychological study that says kid, well, the, often the studies in my field that say that kids who are born to um, highly educated parents tend to be better educated as adults. And they say, well, obviously, why, why did we pay $20 million to find that result? And, and, you know, the answer is the academic sort of has to has to keep that skepticism in order to to, to separate the 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 truth from the things that are true from the things that aren't, even if those truths appear to be you know fairly obvious at first blush. That's 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 the word right there is skeptic. I think I think that's what uh, people who say I'm an academic or I'm a scientist. I think what they're saying is I'm a skeptic. Like I am by nature and by trade skeptical, and and that's a good thing. I think that's uh, I think everyone needs. Uh, skepticism to some extent, some some areas of study more than others. But what uh, what would you change in 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 your field? Uh, whether it's tools, whether it's approaches, like what's as you you know you you get your PhD and you head out into this kind of career field. What uh, what's the first thing that you, as the new president of of educational policy, what are you going to do? Well, I think um, this is this is parsed out a little a uh, lot of different ways, but I'm I'm going to go with time. I think teachers tend not to have a lot of time to do much of anything beyond planning and and giving lessons, and and that kind of shows in the the level of stress that teachers say that they experience the the feeling that teachers don't get paid enough for the jobs that they do. It, it all for me sort of boils down to this lack of planning time, collaboration time, time to sort of step back from the, the 50 foot view of what am I doing in the classroom to help specific kids today to thinking broader about how does this lesson fit in the scope of a year? How does this lesson fit in the scope of everything the school is doing? How can I help the people that I work with do that better? It's interesting that you brought that up immediately after we talked about that skepticism, because I think the way that people talk about making schools better politically is, is often they say, we know what works, what works is X. Um, and they yell very loudly at people on the other side who say, we know what works, what works is Y. Yes. Um, and uh, of course, the truth is, is you might imagine I might say, a, a lot more nuanced than that. But what I think, what I hope for, what um, my work is sort of trying to get at is the idea that the more, the more empowerment that you give to professionals locally to sort of, to, to feel out what a school's um, particular needs are and try to work towards those, the more you can sort of tailor those what work solutions to 
particular times and places and kids. Nice. And my mom was a uh, a public school teacher, and I grew up yeah. hearing about the uh, the disparity between the political educational uh, kind of theories and and actions, and what was in reality when it came to the you know teachers and students. And uh, politics, politics are very, very rarely in the interest of the areas that they are politicking. Yeah, and of course, you, even you, you're up there in a state that has has pretty good schools. Yeah. So um, listeners may have heard, and, and this has been sort of a, a constant drumbeat for a long time, the idea that the United States is falling behind in, in international test scores. Um compared to other countries. And, and it's absolutely true, you know, that, that the U S is, is near the middle on a lot of indicators. If we just separated out the educational system of Minnesota or for that matter, Massachusetts, um, both of those States would, if put on the ranking separately, blow the rest of the world out of the water. What about Florida? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, let's, let's go with the other end of the scale <laughs> on that one. Um, the, the the point being only that there's a there's a huge diversity even within this country of um, how well particular schools and school systems are doing, and we don't spend when we talk about you know Finland does this, Singapore does this, the United States does that. We don't necessarily get into those nuances in a way that's particularly helpful. So you think the United States really should be viewed as like states should be viewed as countries in this uh, in this particular ranking. In, in in educational systems, yeah, the the way that different states tackle funding, the different policies that states have um, toward teachers, the different teacher certification systems. Um, I had a job once where I had to essentially catalog all of the different kinds of teacher preparation programs that are offered by all the different universities in the country, of which, by the way, there are about two, two, 2,200 um schools, places where you can get a degree to be a teacher. And the sheer diversity in the different ways that states certify teachers, that is to say the different grade levels or subjects that they'll certify you for um, once you've completed one of these preparation programs is just astounding. There are places where you can go to school right now and in four years come out with a degree to teach all special education students, kindergarten through grade 12. And there are places where you can come out after having put in the same four years and presumably the same amount of effort and only be allowed to teach special education students in grades, let's say, three through six. Which one, which one of those is more ideal in your opinion? Um, I, I tend to be on the side that specialization is probably better, that particularly in special ed, some of the, the problems we're experiencing with um, you know, high school students high school special ed students not getting challenging enough uh, curriculum or not being sort of given the opportunity to succeed probably has something to do with the fact that their teachers were trained primarily to educate kindergartners. Um, at the same time, the, the potential counterpoint is, you know, there, there aren't a lot of special education teachers out there and there aren't a lot of people to train special education teachers out there. So the kinds of specialization that, you or I might hope for, we really don't have the, the resources around to support it yet. Okay. So, so the first one being the idea, idealist view and the second one being the realist view. Probably. Yeah. All right. You're ready to get nerdy. Let's get nerdy. 
All right. First, I'm going to take a sponsor break, and then we're going to get into the nerd nerd stuff. Our first sponsor today is Ting. What is Ting? Ting is a mobile that makes sense. A no BS mobile service and a reseller of the nationwide Sprint network. What makes Ting different? Well, first off, they are truly and completely contract-free with no early termination fees or anything else. They give you the choice to create the type of plan you want, extra small through XXL service levels for voice minutes, text messages, and megabytes of data, all billed separately. No need to worry about penalties or overage charges. If you use more than you thought you would, just pay for what you used. And if you use less, Ting drops you down to the level you hit and credits the difference to you on your next bill. Think they sound great already? Listen to this. Voicemail, caller ID, tethering, hotspot, three-way calling, call forwarding, and many other features are all part of the service, for free. When you get your bill, you'll never see any mysterious line items either. Ting charges you for what you use, plus whatever taxes they're legally required to collect. No hidden charges or recovery fees. And they also let you have as many devices as you want on one plan, sharing pooled minutes, messages, and megabytes. Each device on a plan costs a flat $6 per month. Need to access your account? Take control of your usage and bills in the powerful online control panel. If you ever need assistance, call them at 1-855-TING-FTW anytime between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. EST, and a real person will pick up the phone. Need a quick fix? Their excellent online support includes active customer forums, a simple and powerful help ticketing system, video tutorials, video startup guides, and much more. Just visit help.ting.com. Go and visit ting.com to learn more and receive $25 off your first Ting device or $25 towards your Ting service. That sounds really cool. That was a very labored sponsor read. My first time ever reading that one. And I know I know you put... I, I remember the, the cool jazz sponsor reads from back in the day. I know you put a lot of effort into those. <laughs> we, only when they don't give me the scripts in time. But we have a new system. Those may never happen again. Aww. I know. Um, but yeah, anyway. I'll get that better next time. I'll rewrite it myself next time. I always rewrite them before the show, but... I was really tired today. That cold will get you. It's draining me. It's draining me. All right, so... Let's talk about brainstorming and tagging. Tagging and brainstorming. We're going to mix that all together. Uh, We should, um, probably because I I feel like they're mixed together in in my head or my day-to-day work. So, so let's start with, uh, with brainstorming. (laughs) What do you, uh, what, what tools, what process do you use to, to get ideas out and elaborate on them? Well, let's see. My process is, is feels nascent, but is evolving. I use, uh, have you, have you heard about this app NV alt by chance? I, something, some freeware thing, I think. Yeah. So I, um, you know, everything I collect on, scraps of paper or um, while I'm sitting at my Mac, um, stuff that comes into my head goes into NVAlt. And I've started using, um, and I think I cribbed this from Merlin. I cribbed too many things from Merlin. Um, The system of organization um, in NVAlt where every file starts with a keyword followed by the letter X. Yeah. um, Because uh, that makes the spelling unique. So I have a, a couple of files always rolling called brainstorm X and that, that's basically where I stick anything that any idea that I think is good but hasn't yet found 
a home somewhere else um, in either sort of an, an emerging idea for a paper or um, in tasks and OmniFocus or, or something like that. Um, when, I'm, when I've gotten to the point where I sort of know what a paper is going to be um, or what I want to study, then I usually start um, a different document which, is called, which comes with the prefix study X. Um, study X then usually followed by some sort of shorthand for what the, the paper or the research project is going to be about. Um, that shorthand sort of lets me keep things consistent between my to-do lists and this and folders on the drive where I'll eventually put, put documents. And then um, the letters triple A, um, I guess the letter A three times. Um, and that, that allows me to do a couple of things. That document ends up becoming sort of a status sheet for where the project is. So both where I write down ideas for what I want to do next or where it's going and sort of justifications for what I did and why. Um, that means every time sort of a weekly review comes up in, in NVAlt, I can just type in AAA and, and look at all of those files at once and decide if there's anything I need to do on them. I realize I'm, I'm mixing together now brainstorming and task management. Well, it sounds like they maybe, are mixed together for you. Yeah, and, and that could be either a, a, a solution or part of the problem. <laughs> that, that I know I've got this system in place where ideas can move around. I'm not necessarily sure that I'm capturing everything I could be capturing. And sometimes I get worried that the system is almost a little bit too regimented and that that, 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 that regimentation might be a barrier for me to uh, write down sort of little snippets of things that it would be good for me to keep around. Okay. Have you ever seen my, my little system called Quick Question? I did look at that once. Um, I don't remember why it didn't stick for me, probably because I don't spend enough time in the terminal. Well, yeah, and that's exactly uh, it. Is, uh, is it's, it's a little complex, but the concept behind it is basically that I title my notes as questions that, that I have the answer to now. So, like, the note title will be, how do I uh, base64 encode a string from terminal? And then the body of the note will simply be the command that I use to do it. And that's all that goes in that note. Instead of capturing a bunch of snippets all in one note, now I can just go in and when I'm faced with that problem a year from now and I can't remember how it was done, I can just type in, how do I base 64? And I'll find that answer. And you can do the same thing with not only like questions and answers, you can do it with uh, ideas as well. Like you can say, what, what, what do I think about this? And when you go to search for it, like you can, the, the problem with like capturing just a ton of random notes is reviewing. Right. And it, notes get lost. If you have a lot of ideas and a lot of people have a lot of ideas, if you capture them all, you'll lose 90% of them, 50% maybe. Because you just you can't possibly remember to look for things that you don't remember you wrote. So like the like separating the notes out and giving them titles that that you would search for as questions is is typically my my best solution in my own workflow. I like the the question idea. I realized that what I was uh, what I was about to say is the problem with recall is whether or not I'm going to whether or not I'm going to remember to, 
to use the same words for describing a problem or um, understanding something I'm puzzling about when I put it in as when I try to recall it. Um, and, and that's about, that seems to be about striking a balance between so much formalism that it feels like if an idea is too underdeveloped, I don't have anywhere to put it. And so little formalism that I can, that I can never find something. Well, that's the thing uh, with ideas though, is they don't, usually they don't necessarily fit into your system because right. they're ethereal kind of concepts. But I, I think the question, not as I start to think about it more, the, the question idea um, may be the sort of level of structure that I need. And maybe what was turning me off is, is that I have questions. They're just not, they're, they're less quick questions and more puzzle questions, right? They're, they're stuff that takes me a little bit longer to sort of, feel out or they're a little bit more existential than how to base 64 encode a string. And, and I, I, it see, it seems like the system now that I'm thinking about it and reviewing it would actually work for those. I just need to come into it with the right mindset. Well, and you obviously would have to uh, modify the requirements and the parameters of the system to work with a more uh, academic philosophical collection of ideas. Right. Than with my uh, my personal like Unix tips, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so so you basically everything is very textual for you. Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever played with uh, like mind mapping and using more imagery and and uh, kind of uh, what's it called like concept mapping? I have a little bit, and I've definitely got you know I've got my node on the computer here. I've got. Um, Pronounce delineato. I I don't know how always, it's. I, I I can read it, but every time I say it, it comes out different. Delineato yeah. might be that. I don't um, know, but I think it's delineate so, delineate like delineate o kind of is what they were going okay. for. Okay, so I'm I'm always playing around with apps. I think uh, either because I don't think that way, or because um, I end up doing well. More realistically, it's that I end up doing mind maps. They just end up being physical somehow. So they're jotted down on pen and paper or they're jotted down on a whiteboard often. Um, and I don't know if that's because – well, I think I think the reason why is that I, I have these contradictory desires in an app for it to be um, unstructured enough that I can sort of format things in a way that looks appealing to me and that models the ideas in the way that, that I want. But – not so structured that I get overwhelmed with the feature set. So, so, so Curio is, you're talking about Curio right now. Have you tried Curio? I've not seen Curio. Oh, you really should. It's, it's what you just described. Okay. It is, it's overwhelming. Uh, it's like Scrivener. Like Mm -hmm. you're constantly wondering if you're using it to its full potential. Right. Because it's, it's huge. But, uh, but as far as, being able to collect notes and ideas in any kind of format, whether it's a mind map or a bunch of sticky notes or a list of plain text notes, you can drag anything together into kind of a what they call space. They call them spaces. And you can create multiple spaces for different topics. And then you can just make these spaces expand and grow as needed. Then it's got awesome search features. So you can like quickly tag and locate all the different ideas as you kind of work through them. I reckon that's actually one of my picks of the week. So I'll tell you more about it later, but no, I, I wait. 
Oh yeah, it is. It is. It's my number two pick of the week. <laughs> I will take a look at that. I have sort of this interesting added problem where we make these things often called conceptual frameworks, which are basically mind maps with arrows. They're essentially illustrations of, you know, this, this, and that have an effect on this, which in turn has an effect on this, which in turn has an effect on this. Sure. Um, and so I need to be sort of in the back of my mind all the time is preparing these to be sort of production quality, right? Or something that could that could easily be folded into a, a published paper. And if you if you took even a couple of minutes to look at some of the appalling, just terrible graphic design, um, I, I, I shouldn't even really call it design because it's not particularly designed in many of the papers I read. Your your head would be in your hands. Um, the the let's say the older members of our community tend to design primarily in word primarily drawing little boxes and arrows in word and it just does not it does not come out in a way that makes me happy yeah i can understand that um definitely have you uh have you worked at all well and and you asked me in in our email conversations earlier about uh about tagging and it mm-hmm. comes to mind that in in the process of collecting notes, in the process of brainstorming this stuff, uh, the review process, tagging could be of assistance. Uh, but you had some questions, concerns, bewilderment. I do. I think I'm at – so I, I recognize that the tagging system in Mavericks could be particularly powerful for me. And I think it helps me bridge the gap. The reason I could never get into Evernote is I, I for whatever reason, am this – stickler about having all of my um, files where I know where they are, have them be cross-platform, have them be backed up on all my backups, all of that sort of thing. So when I heard about tags in Mavericks, I thought maybe that this would bring over the the one feature that I was missing. Um, I'm sort of at a loss, I think, of where to start. Um, I have a fairly developed hierarchical system um, for filing um, notes and projects and various drafts of um, projects for various venues and in places. Um, I'm sort of left trying to figure out when I'm pulling an idea together and I might have text files over here and um, JPEGs of photos I've taken of whiteboards over there um, and whatever else, how I, how I use tags in a way that will let me, um, that will let me bring those, that will, help me bring those together in a way that folders aren't yet. Yeah. So I think, I, I think I'm still at where to start. Yeah. I'm actually writing a book about that and it, it really is coming to fruition. Um, I tell. <laughs> I've talked about it for a while, but I really, I really truly am working on it. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a complicated concept, but in reality it's, it's very, it's basically when you when you're working in your uh hyper research and you're tagging content mm-hmm. you're, you're basically you know you're building a system where a, a a computer can then pull together a meaningful collection for you based on the tags that you assigned the problem gets to be that unlike a hierarchical folder system the tags are very uh they're personal like you you come up with semantic terms that that have specific meaning to you in your workflow in your study in your life and they're not necessarily translatable to a group 
And that's where most right. complications arise is because true productivity in any kind of setting generally re depends on the ability of a group to access each other's ideas and information. And that's where it gets complicated. It's coming up with a tagging system that, that uh, a, a taxonomy that works within a group for everybody. And, and tagging doesn't work if there's even one letter difference between two tags. Like right. you lose the, you lose the association. So you have to have strict tagging guidelines. And at that point, it gets to, to a, a, you get into a position where you start to wonder if you're better off just sticking with these hierarchical folders and a system that everyone knows and understands. And then you have to weigh, you know, is, does it make sense? Do, does the way I file these folders separate content that really could be brought together? And if that's the case, you can stick with the folders, but then tag within the folders and create those relationships. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, I have the, I, I don't know whether it's actually a benefit or a drawback um, of generally working with people for whom, um, who don't know about the tagging features, probably don't care and would be, it would be very difficult to convince them to use them. Right. Yeah. Um, even if I could get, you know, everyone I work with who uses a Windows computer onto a Mac, it would be pretty unlikely that I could get them to tag it all, let alone, you know. Yeah, no, that's actually a good place to be. Help us, help us to, to work together. So really, really easy to be for me. And, and they would be a way to, in those collaborative projects, it would be a way to, when someone writes an email saying, can you pull all of this together for me to be able to quickly pull it together because I've organized it. Beforehand. So, so check this out. I figured out over the last two years of, of tagging that I can create a hierarchical tag system, even though I don't have a tag system that supports hierarchical tags. Mm -hmm. So I can create, I use like, I call them context tags. And these are like very top level work, home development, archive, etc. And then within those, I have like a hierarchy of folders, each with their own kind of descending tag order and they're grouped. And so I actually have the physical folders to help me keep the tags straight. And then I can use these uh, kind of string tags that cause files to automatically be filed into their folders, but pre-tagged. Mm -hmm. And then I have, I have an app called or a script called planter. Have you seen that one? Uh, it doesn't ring a bell. Uh, it's got, there's, you, there's enough on your projects page that I'm sure I don't remember all of it. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, but, uh, but I can type plant and then I can, like, if I'm starting a new web project, for example, I can type plant and then the name of the client, the web project is for, and it'll huh. create the whole file hierarchy automatically and add these tags to them. And then, so the top level tag would be customized. And then all the tags below are standard, like, uh, assets kind of tags. And uh, so these these, full, these hierarchies get created automatically, and I use colon separated tags all together in one tag to define the the path of the hierarchy. And it gets see as I say it, it sounds really complex, and that's that's what I'm working on in this book is to kind of break the concept down. But it really it does. I have to say, tagging gets very. Um, it's so abstract, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's it's abstract because you're really 
you're really building a very ethereal <laughs> Vapor system that depends entirely on your own memory. And if you forget a tag, if you forget that a tag ever existed, then all those files that have that tag almost cease to exist as far as your organization okay. system goes. So when you when you put together that system, did you sit down and consciously think about what tags you need and wrote them down, or did it emerge more organically? Well, when I started tagging, I tagged everything with everything. Yeah. And it took me it took me a year of realizing that I had about a two month span on some of these more uh abstract tags before I would completely forget what they were. So over the course of about six months to a year, it kind of evolved into a workable system. And it took me about two years to really be able to pinpoint what parts of it were working. Um, I recommend that anyone getting into it, it with Mavericks and, and getting started now does take a, a second to sit down and kind of figure out what their what their main contexts are, what their what their project kind of hierarchy should be, and I'm outlining, uh, work I'm working that uh, kind of guideline system out so that you know what to consider when you sit down to write these taxonomies out. But I do recommend actually writing them out and writing them down in a note that you can reference, kind of like people stick their passwords and on their monitor. Instead of your password, you stick your tags, and you can tag your passwords. Then, does, one password has tags, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, I've never used I've them used, in one password. But do I use any? Um, there's now the they they had these saved searches before, and and you used to have to sort of build a saved search around how often you had changed a password and how right. long it had been since they were changed. And I think they built that into the, yeah. the new version. So you don't yeah, have to do that. In one password four, you can, it's got like automatic, uh, it'll tell you which ones are weak and which ones are outdated. That's fun. Passwords. Um, okay. So let's see tagging. What, what else? It helped me out with my book here. <laughs> and tell me what else is baffling about tagging, uh, and what did I just make you more baffled about? Well, I think to to my mind, the we touched on this a little bit that there's a there's a distinct advantage to being able to sort files both hierarchically and non hierarchically, and the advantage of building tags into the file system, at least for now, is that you can do both. Um, you know, I have a, I use a document management system called Mendeley, um, which is sort of a competitor to papers or a couple of the other products that do these sort of sorting of, of academic documents and citation management. And I think the primary reason that I use it is that it lets me do both hierarchical categorizing in the sense that it has this virtual folder system and it lets me do tags. So I end up doing both um, sort of sorting documents by project in the hierarchy and tagging based on subject. That makes sense. Um, that's that's the ideal way to work to me. Like it, it's I, not I like a scattered mess then. Yeah. I haven't come up with that. I haven't come up with that same sort of idea or that same sort of overriding decision-making structure for deciding um, 
what kind of folder am I going to put this document in and what kind of tags am I going to use to describe it? Yeah. Um, you, you ever go through people's Flickr streams and look at what they, what they tag their files or their yeah. photos? Like it's, if, if my, if my <laughs> citation management looked like most people's Flickr streams, yeah, I'd be, I'd, it would all be over. I'd, they'd deny me my PhD. Well, I'm not. I'm not necessarily holding up my own list of citation management tags for anyone's inspection either. <laughs> um, but I, I'd like to think that it gets a little better every time I sit down with it and say, "Okay, some of this needs to be pared down," or I at least need to get rid of the things that are misspelled. It, 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 free time is is a valuable asset when it comes to maintaining a tag hierarchy or even a taxonomy. You have to you have to be able to find the time to go back through and weed them out, and merge them together and figure out figure out what system you've uh, you know subconsciously developed over time, and if you never have time to do that, well, a you need to work on your time management, but b you're gonna end up in a forest of of words that are meaningless. But you've yeah. you've experienced that. Uh, oh yeah, definitely. And, and and maybe part of and giving you advice for the book, um, I'm sort of worried about that. That's more or less fine when that forest is contained in in Mendeley, and I can sort of shut it off. Um, I can't imagine having that forest when dealing with the rest of my files. Right so I, across I, your I whole file system. I, I might have that fear going in of of not wanting to start tagging for fear that I'll never stop and and end <laughs> up with this convoluted and tangled tree for dealing with my family photos. And that's why I've always recommended that you keep your file hierarchy to some extent. Like the idea of throwing all files into one bucket and then tagging them to sort them. It doesn't work for me as much as I love tagging, as much as I'm a proponent of tagging, don't give up, you know, the basic separation of topics through folders. Otherwise someday, yeah, you will end up with a system that's just, it hurts to look at. It's like having a really, really messy office, which I have right now. And it makes me like, um, I, I, I focus only on my screen. I get scared to look at my office. It's very, it's like being in a dark forest. Well, we haven't even started talking about file names, which are in some ways, you know, a third sense of a third kind of organization. Now that spotlight is, is as fast as it is. And, you know, we've got tools like Alfred that help easily find files. I, I've tried to build some system systemization the way that I've named files and sorting that out from what what should be in a name versus what should be in a tag versus what should be in a folder is is has added that extra level of paralyzing complexity. Yeah, for me, file names are uh, simply they're they're space separated. I used to always name things with Unix conventions and prefixes and everything, mm-hmm. and now I've just started naming files things like their actual title with spaces between no prefixes, no dates, none, none of that stuff, because I can, I can enclose all that metadata in tags and half the metadata is already, it already exists in the file system. Anyway, things like dates created dates, modified dates, last access. Like I can get all that through spotlight without adding anything to the file. Uh, the folder, the top level folder that it's in covers, you know, the, uh, the context of, the you know the file and the uh 
the name itself can really, for me, just come down to a descriptor of exactly what that file is. Like the note file I have for this show is called Systematic Episode 77 with Chase Nordengren. I think there's no additional craziness in there. I was at a I was at a conference once and I was in one of these paper sessions that they throw us in with four or five other people. Um, and we were all using my laptop because I I insist if we're only going to use one laptop that it's my laptop. Um, um, and the guy who was presenting last in the session got up and we pulled up his PowerPoint and he started talking. And it was only about two minutes in that he realized that it was the wrong PowerPoint. And it was because every single um, presentation on his USB drive was named, you know, presentation.ppp, PPT. <laughs> And he just he completely got lost in his file organization in that moment. Okay, so there there is a certain uh, a certain practicality to just using very semantic names for things, right? And not naming things one, two, three, because that's meaningless after after you have five versions, five A and four C, and right, yeah. I usually if if something is a variation of a file, I'll put a dash and then exactly what changed like if it's an experiment and i'm running like if i'm testing out stuff for marked and i'm outputting like five different like word documents from a markdown file i'll put a dash after each one and say this is what i did differently like this is this style with this output option and that makes sense to me like that kind of data because it's it's easier than tagging and it makes it really easy in the file system to find what you were looking for and know what what each file is I, I will admit that when I'm working with uh, progressive files where the changes in them are iterative, I will sometimes use numbers in the beginning in addition to a descriptor of what changed just to sort of force alphabetization. Um, do you I'm put the numbers alph- at the beginning of the file name? I do. I put them at the beginning. See, that makes am, more sense to me. I am big on alphabetization for some reason. The home say, screen, again. say it again. Say alphabetization. Al- uh, alphabetization. Nice. All right. The home screen on my phone is actually alphabetized, and mine too. For whatever, yeah, for whatever reason, that just makes sense to me. It does. When I go to look, I have folders, and then I have apps within folders. And what's within the folders isn't always alphabetized, but the folders always are because then I can quickly scan to music or web or communication, whatever. Anyway, I got to jump to a sponsor so we can get to our top three picks. Yep. Um. Having too much fun. Time flies. Let's see. Sponsor two, MailChimp.com. Easy email newsletters. I know this one by heart, so it'll go, it'll go smoothly. MailChimp helps you design email newsletters, share them on social networks, integrate with services you already use, and track your results. It's like your own personal publishing platform. They help you customize your sign-up form to match your brand so you can share it on your website and integrate it into your Facebook page. You can even collect signups from an iPad or a laptop. Importing an existing list into MailChimp is a snap, no matter how it's formatted. And you can personalize everything your subscribers see, including sign-up forms and confirmation emails. And there's never been a better time to try MailChimp. With 2,000 subscribers, you can send 12,000 emails per month forever. Just visit MailChimp.com slash 5x5 to learn more. Wow, that was good. That was good. Um... All right, so we have top three picks, and we'll have to rush them a little bit. But that's okay, because we already talked about one of mine uh, relatively extensively. So why don't you go ahead with your first pick? Sure. Well, um, I 
had to recommend a pen, um, actually a pen body, because I am I am just absolutely obsessed with pens and paper, perhaps to a deleterious degree. Um, it's absorbed too much of my attention in desk space. Um, but I'm going to recommend a pen from a company called Keras Customs, which is a machining shop in, uh, I think, Mesa, Arizona. Um, the pen's called the Retract. Um, Keras has sort of made all, all sorts of hot rod parts and, and iPhone speakers for a while, I think. And they've had a couple of different Kickstarter campaigns um, to make pens. Um, and this is the result of their more recent one. It's a, it's a retractable um, pen that they make in aluminum, copper, and brass. I have the aluminum one, which looks just just perfect next to a MacBook um, because of the thing. But what what makes this sort of interesting and hacky is the number of different pen refills um, that you can put in this thing. So I use in it a refill called the High Tech Seat Cavalier. It's a variant of the the High Tech Z, which is this really sort of thin micro gel ink pen that is popular with um, a lot of designers and um, various other type folks. It's uh, the pen's built for the Pilot G2, which is available sort of everywhere and anywhere and everywhere. Um, the pen that Dr. Drang recommended on the show a couple months ago, the Uniball Jetstream, fits uh, the refill fits in in the retract. But what they also do, and and this is where the fun really starts, they ship the pen with this length of aluminum tubing, or not aluminum tubing, I'm sorry, plastic tubing, PVC tubing, um, and a couple of different springs so that you can basically cut the tube to try to fit any refill into this pen. And it works It works pretty well most of the time. Wait, so you pay $100 for a pen and you have to cut your own tube? Oh, the retract is the the brass one's probably a hundred dollars, but the aluminum's like forty five fifty. Um, um, I'm gonna check that. Will... Hold on. You're right, forty five dollars. I was looking okay. at the copper one. It will fit out of the box. It will fit the Jetstream, which is a great pen. The G2, which is a great pen. Um, the High Tech C, which is a great pen. But if you if you want to get finicky with it, um, this is something that sort of allows that finickiness and allows that tinkering. Um, just if, if nothing else for the extra fun. I have had some pen nerds on the show. And you you just won. You won the pen world. Wow. What did I do? You presented a pen that was hackable. Ah, yeah. You presented a, a relatively expensive pen that is fully customizable. Something you could truly nerd out about. You're not just looking at the the stroke and the way it fits your hand. You're actually looking at like extensibility well, that's crazy it, by the way yeah you yeah you mentioned the price and i i probably spend way too much on pens relative to other people but i really encourage people to get one nice pen one nice pen that you can keep on your desk you know we spend two thousand dollars on these computers and seven hundred dollars on these phones and whatever else and it it i think it really benefits your quality of life to have just one nice pen that that fits in with the other things that you own says something about you personally and that that uses a refill that you really really like fair enough i still had the same bullet pen i've had for well for four years because i had i lost the one i had for two years before that i don't bullet, write much bullet pen's a great pen and you can fit that refill in the retract if you cut just a tiny length of tubing i do really like the the what do you call it the the refill is yeah, there a name for it? well no like the actual part that it's just called a refill with the actual ballpoint on it and everything. 
yeah, that that that's generally just called the refill one. Um, I think the space pen is, you know, there's a couple of different pressurized pens mm-hmm. out there. I think the space pen is the only one where the refill itself has all of the pressurized elements in it. Yeah. So you can transport that to different little places and you still get all the benefit of the bullet. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to move on. and uh, Please do. I'm, I'm going to tell you quickly about Clarify, which we've mentioned a couple times on the show. But as far as I can tell, according to my records, it's never been a top pick. Uh, so Clarify from Blue Mango is kind of a successor to Screen Steps. And it lets you quickly and easily create really nice documents uh, for uh, instructional documents for screen-based activities. Um, so you can grab a quick snapshot using their built-in screenshot tools. You can annotate it, and then you can add a paragraph of text and then move on to the next step. And when you're done, you can output it to PDF or a document or to uh, a WordPress site or even to a markdown file uh, that you can then style using various you know tools designed for styling markdown files. Um, and that markdown export is actually part of a beta, but it will be out soon. And I have been testing it, and it's awesome. <laughs> that um, I'm actually teaching some some software seminars here in the next couple of months. That I, might actually be really useful. Uh, if, yeah, if you want to describe how to use software, it is the tool. I will definitely take a look at that. All right. Well, uh, we'll move right along then. Tell me something else. Um, so I am, uh, my second pick is a company that makes um, primarily jeans, actually. They're called Gustin Jeans. They're at weargustin.com. Here's the, so the thing about jeans is um, they're all too expensive. Designer jeans are, are obviously too expensive. You know, $200 is way too much to pay for a pair of jeans. But even the cheap jeans are, I can't remember where I read this article, but even the cheap jeans are marked up to the same percentage um, as the expensive jeans are. So whether you pick the cheap jeans or the expensive jeans, you're, you're, you're getting a product that's, that's way overpriced. And in the case of the cheap jeans, way too low quality. Um, but what Gustin did, and they're in San Francisco, I think, is they sort of adopted this Kickstarter-like model um, to making jeans, where what they'll do is they'll come up with a fabric. They have these really nice, gorgeous dark denims um, and, and a couple of different other colors too, um, that age really well. They'll put up um, a crowdfunding campaign. Those pairs usually go for like 79 bucks or so. Um, and if they sell all 100 units or whatever, they'll make the jeans. And, and because they don't have to keep stock, because they don't really do much advertising, because they can make to order, they're able to bring the price way, way down. So you're getting, for that 80 bucks a pair of jeans that might cost $150, $200 if you were to buy it at a department store or something like that. Nice. I like it. I'm ordering a pair right now. Like literally One. I just click the button. Um, <laughs> no, nah, that's really cool because I, I like kind of not couture, but uh, uh, quality. Like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, bespoke, bespoke, <laughs> um, <laughs> but like really well-made fashionable jeans. I, I really, I have a weak spot for that. Uh, I pretty much only wear jeans these days and I like them to be nice. And, uh, but you're right. $200 is a lot to spend on a pair of pants, especially when like six months later, the zipper breaks, right? you know, or, or it starts to wear thin in a place that a pair of Levi's never would have. 
Yeah. That's well, this cool. is a pair. I mean, I haven't had because the company hasn't been around enough to really test how long these things last. But I can tell you from from looking at them myself, I think I, I think I've got a couple of years in these. Easily. Oh yeah, you know, you know, the first time you put on a pair of jeans, how yeah. long they're going to last. You can feel it. Yeah, that's cool. I that definitely on my list. Nice job, good pick. All right, my second one is uh, one we already mentioned, and it's uh, an app called Curio. And it has also been mentioned. We've had the developer on the show, but I don't believe it's ever been a topic either. So I'm at the here at the for the new year. It's going to be uh, number two top pick, and it is basically a massive application for brainstorming. And it's not it's not massive in a bad way. It's massive in a powerful way. You open it up and you drag in, say, a mind map or a, a note or a, a list. And, uh, or you can drag in your, you know, an email from your mail application. It'll like create an archive copy of it with a link to the original email and, uh, drag in, uh, like a mind map from another application. You can link in there. It can import and export OPML, which is cut and paste. It's super powerful, but it's, and then you have these spaces that are kind of like physical, like a wax board where you can move all your notes around and group them together and draw connections between them and, and then expand the space over another, you know, 300 pixels and it'll grow and you can drop another list in there and then draw a connection between that and expand a note in a mind map out to a list. And it's just everything you want to do. It's, it can do everything you'd ever need to do. While you were saying that, I hit mute so that no one would hear me type. And now I'm finally looking at this, and this is this is impressive. This might be. I I think you were right that this hits this hits that sweet spot I was looking for between too much and too little. I think there's a free trial too because it's a hundred dollars to buy, but I'm pretty sure you can give it a run. There is. It looks like a 25 day trial, which I'm not going to click on so that you don't get the latency of my download, <laughs> but. I do not have good internet service here. It's terrible. All right. Well, do check that out. Will do. And then tell me about your last pick. My last pick is an iPhone dock. It is a dock called the Sidoka. That's the one I use. Not Sidoka. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I'll I'll, I'll tell you what I like about it. It's by Blue Lounge. Um, So it's got a little USB out. So I I often keep mine plugged into the computer because I still do – sort of hard um, iTunes syncs. But what I really like about it is the angle. It puts the phone at, at about the angle of like a desk calculator or something like that. And for me, that makes it that that makes it really easy when I'm working to use the phone as a calculator or to quickly look at my OmniFocus list or to keep an eye on Twitter. Uh, that ang- The angle, I think, is really unique in, in all of the docs that that I've seen and it works for me a lot better than keeping my phone sort of straight vertical up and down parallel to the uh, parallel to the laptop screen. Definitely. I totally agree with that. Um, the angle is what sold me on it. There's also a stand for iPad called the nimble stand. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. Um, I'll send you a link to it. It's not terribly well known, but it's a really uh, kind of flexible architecture where you can, you can, Hook up a Bluetooth keyboard, like a little Apple Bluetooth keyboard, slides right into it, and then you can put the iPad in at an angle that's very similar to the uh, the dock that we're talking about that I can't pronounce. <laughs> it's like Sudoku, <laughs> Sidoka. 
Yep. Something um, like that. But yeah, this is, why that, this is why they're show notes. It's that same kind of low profile angle that I find just way more useful than an upright iPad or iPhone right in front of my screen. Yeah. I like them down by my keyboard where I can just, I don't know. It's perfect for me. I just, you know, I, I've got that habit for keeping things organized and linear. So I've got my keyboard, my magic trackpad on the right of the keyboard and the phone on the left of the keyboard and everything's a similar angle and it just, it pleases my organizational eye. That is, that's almost exactly the way my, my table is currently set up. I did get a second magic trackpad so I could do like the Justin Williams, like two handed gesture thing. But um, way too much for me. <laughs> it's fun. He was right. It's fun. But, uh, but I do, I generally have the phone in that dock on the left side of my keyboard and uh, it is perfect, especially if you load up better touch tool on it, you can use it as like an extra controller. But that's that's pretty crazy. I might have to do that. Have you used Better Touch Tool? I have. I've tried two or three times. I've never really gotten the rhythm of it. I've heard you talk about how much you love it. Um, I think I just you know I I love the gestures on the trackpad. I can't. Whenever I sit down and try to think of other stuff to do, I can never really think of enough to do to justify keeping Better Touch Tool running. I'll send you a list of awesome ideas. Okay. Seriously, like I won't go into it because we're out of time. But like, if I roll my fingers from pinky to first finger across the like tap 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 tap, it'll it'll move my screen to the far or move the current window to the far right of the screen. If I go in the other direction, it'll swing it to the other side. So it's really easy to quickly organize my windows. And like a four finger click on any part of a window will minimize it. Mm, Like stuff like that. Once you get used to it, it's so easy. See, I just I just got the Retina MacBook Pro, which has been really exciting for me. But it's made me really hate my secondary monitor because, of course, next to each other, I think mm-hmm. it's night and day. So uh, the experiment that I'm trying now is going without a second monitor and just becoming a lot better about window management on the primary monitor. So using Windows more, using Mission Control more, um, using that three finger left and right gesture to switch between full screen apps, and, and it's working really well. I'm I'm really enjoying it. Have you tried Moom yet? I do use Moom, and I I live by Moom. Um, in comparison with, I think I tried a couple of the other window managers, but what I end up using Moom a lot for is I end up using that grid view where you sort of draw the window onto a grid representation yeah, of your screen, which is really handy. Yeah, yeah. For some for some reason that just that visually clicks for me more than than trying to remember keyboard shortcuts. I love that you can just hover over the plus symbol up in the the little stoplight section. Yeah, and just. Pick your uh, and then just draw your window onto the screen. Yeah. And anyway, since that's not a pick, I'll move on. <laughs> and my third pick is actually MindNode, which has also come up in this show, which has also been on the show before. And again, I don't believe it's ever been a top pick, but I'm going to mention MindNode across all platforms because it's on the Mac and there's a new version on both iPad and iPhone that is absolutely gorgeous. It's It's currently one of the best. As far as just simple getting ideas out of your head into a really great looking application quickly and easily, it is, it's awesome. Um, so that's the plug for the iOS version. The Mac version is also, uh, it's not as powerful as iThoughtsX, which is my other primary mind mapping tool right now, but it is much less expensive at, uh, let's see, $20 on the Mac as opposed to $50 for iThoughtsX or $100 for Mind Manager. 
for just 20 bucks, it's a very solid, very good looking app with great sync with your iPhone and iPad. There, I'm done. Absolutely. Um, I was talking about making those conceptual diagrams earlier, and I, I often do that in MindNote because, you know, the formatting is really simple and clean, and, you know, often publications don't want you to send anything color, so it makes yeah. it in black and white. And, it, it, you know, it's a nice way to make really simple diagrams really fast. Definitely. Definitely. All right. We have one more sponsor, and that is Shopify, a hosted e-commerce solution that allows you to set up and run your own online store in minutes. Pick a template, add your products, pick your payment processor from PayPal to Stripe to Authorize.net, and ship your stuff with just a few clicks. With Shopify, it's easy to sell online, and there's no software to download, host, upgrade, or maintain. Pick from over 100 professionally designed e-commerce templates or create your own with (laughs) with full control over the HTML and CSS. There are no bandwidth limits and no need to worry about scaling down when your store becomes popular. And every Shopify store is level 1 PCI DSS compliant and totally secure. Shopify has just announced their Shopify POS. Point of sale. Not what you think. It's an iPad application that lets you lets you sell your Shopify store's product in a physical retail setting. It's quick and easy. Browse your store's catalog, pick a customer's product, swipe their credit card, and print the receipt or send it through the email. Through email, through the emails. Um, that, w- that was a mistake on my part. That's not in the script, I'm sorry. Um, you can automatically sync products and orders, and there's only one dashboard to manage all your retail and online stores. Get Shopify point-of-sale hardware, which includes a credit card reader, cash drawer, iPad stand, and a receipt drawer. If you order online, the shipping is free. Visit shopify.com slash 5 by 5 and you'll get three months free. Check them out today. All you need is something to sell. And that brings us to the end of the show, where I tell people you can be found on Twitter at ethosophical. Ethosophical, yeah. Like the word philosophical, but where you replace ethos with Philo. Except this the other where, way around. Uh, yes, the other way around. This is where I pretend that I know something about Greek. <laughs> so it's E T H O S O P H I C A L. That'll be in the show notes. And awesome. you also are at semicolons.net. Yes. Okay. And I am TT Scoff everywhere. And I'm at brettterpster.com. And that's all you really have to know. Uh, if if you are interested in being on Systematic and you have a story to tell, do feel free to stop by brettterpstercom slash audio drop and upload a two to five minute uh, just kind of introduction and let me know who you are and how I can reach you. And we'll, uh, it's, it's an audition and I'd love to hear from as many people as possible. I'm having a lot of fun with this. So thank you, Chase, for being on today. Thank you, Brett. It was a lot of fun. It was. It was a lot of nerdy fun. I from, love nerdy fun. From blood sickles to mind maps. And, and everything uh, in between. Everything in between. All right. And that was episode 77. And we will see everybody in a week. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs>